back to Great Quarter, guys. We had a little bit of a break last week, so we are excited to be back and joining you live here on Freight Waves TV. If you're joining us live, thanks so much for joining us. If you are watching on demand, make sure to go ahead and subscribe to Great Quarter, guys, if you like what you hear today, or subscribe to Freightcast, where you can get all of Freight Waves audio on one tidy feed. I'm Andrew Cox. He's lead economist Anthony Smith. And we've got a really fun show today. We're going to have Nate Skyver. He is the founder of LPF Spend Management with us. He, that is a, he runs an e-commerce consultancy focused on kind of leveling the playing field for e-commerce shippers. So we had some big news on Friday that UPS is entering the same-day delivery game. We had kind of knew that this was on the horizon. CEO Carol Tomei told us during the second quarter call that they were exploring some options, even had some pilots underway at that point. But there's a little bit of a difficulty here, right? UPS is, an, much of their workforce is unionized, but with the Teamsters, and it's a little bit of a battle going on, having to make sure that they build this network completely outside of their own network. So we're going to talk to Nate about what this deal means for UPS, what it means for the same-day delivery space, and also talk about how he's preparing his e-commerce clients for this crazy peak of a peak of a peak uh, headed for us here in the next coming weeks. Let me take a moment to thank my sponsor, DDC FPO. This episode is brought to you by DDC FPO. DDC is a business process outsourcing provider that specializes in freight, perhaps best known for freight billing. DDC can turn your back office into a profit center. Discover how to cut expenses and increase margins at ddcfpo.com. Again, that's ddcfpo.com. All right, we got one chart of the day for you and a couple top stories, but today is Apple release day. I feel like we kind of have to mention it. Did you, did you see it yet? You see anything going on with it? I haven't seen it yet. As you know, I am a You are an Android, Android fan, guy, I understand. But the thing is, I got to keep up to date. So I am going to watch it when I get home. Just kind of see what's new. I have to give Apple the credit. They're always giving something new, something fresh. I mean, I have a Surface book here. But definitely took some design cues from Apple, so I'm going to check that out for sure. Apparently, they did finally go to USB-C on the iPhone. I thought they were just going to completely skip it and go to uh, no charging, yeah, yeah. The, the back thing. But they went to USB-C. I wish they would have done that with the 12. would have made my life a lot easier. I guess the, the point I'm bringing Apple release day up is air cargo capacity. About to get a lot tighter, right? Apple ships all of these iPhones, usually from Taiwan and from China, and they go all over the world. And they take up a significant portion of the air cargo capacity when they do releases like this. So as bad as air cargo capacity has been and as high as we've seen rates, likely about to spike in the next coming weeks. That's what we talked about with Eric Coolish a few weeks ago. He said, yeah, this, this upcoming Apple release, it's going to hit. It's just, you know, converging peaks uh, at the same yeah. time when uh, it's going to be really difficult. All right. Top stories real quick. Actually, let's run through uh, chart of the day. Excuse me. Uh, so right here we have our chart of the day. This is the inbound ocean uh, volume index into the U.S. We are going to do a congestion check here in a moment to talk about the congestion in the port of L.A. and Long Beach. Well, you can see where it's coming in. Uh, the freight waves model is projecting a huge spike in containerized imports here in the coming days, coming weeks. Uh, should come as no surprise. I'll do this congestion check for you. So from the Marine Exchange on Twitter, we have set another new ship record as of yesterday. Or I'm sorry, yep, as of yesterday, the 13th. So there are now 140 total ships in the port of LA, Long Beach. That's 80 at anchor and 60 at berth. Of the 140, 87, another new record here, are container ships, including 56 at anchor. I love this part. Uh, they, they, they tied a second tweet, and I, I don't know what this says about the current environment, but I found it hilarious. It, he thought the, the Marine Exchange got on Twitter and said, ships in drift area continue to drift peacefully and well, working marvelously with the VTS <laughs> to pick a good spot for that vessel in concert and coordinated with all other vessels. So, I mean, you know, you think about this, obviously there is a lot of space that you can just park those ships out there, but you do have to coordinate it because these things float, these things float around, they get too close to one another. There's, there's you know, 80 ships out there yeah. at, at port right now. So it's a lot. It's a lot and unprecedented, never been seen before, never happened before. It's not like 
this is history repeating itself before or rhyming or in some sense. It's like, no, we're Completely uncharted territory. Yeah. And, and while they sit, uh, shipping stocks hitting fresh highs right yeah. now. So our own Eric, um, Eric Kulish, or Greg Miller rather, put out this article talking about shipping stocks and how they kind of went through a lull during the summer, but we've got shares of bulk owners of container lines, container ship leasers, and liquefied natural gas carriers now moving up again and chopping or charting uh, new fresh peaks. So I've got a chart here of the dry bulk containers from Koifen that you can have a look at to get a, a little understanding of how these um, these stocks have been moving. You can see that summer lull throughout the month of kind of May, June, and July, but they have surged uh, since then. So safe bulkers on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, Diana Shipping, Ginkgo Shipping and Trading, they all attained 52-week highs yesterday. The Breakwave Dry Bulking Ship Container ETF. So this is a, a dry bulk shipping ETF is at its highest level since its inception in March 2018. So if you think those numbers are nuts, you're looking at 300% uh, plus on the dry bulkers. Let's go ahead and toss up the container shippers chart up next. This one uh, is really astounding. So container ship leaser Euroseas hit a new 52-week high on Monday. Many of the container shipping equities also reached 52-week highs this month, including Global Ship Lease, Costamar uh, on, on Friday, and then Zim and Matson hit fresh all-time highs last week. So look at our <laughs> look at these percent changes on the right year over year. Um, Danos is up 1,500%. Euroseas is up 1,200% year over year. Just crazy, crazy uh, returns on these stocks if you were able to hop in them towards the end of last year. Yeah, I mean, and it's wild because it makes sense because you see all the volume and it's only, I'm curious to see how long this kind of maintains because of course these volumes and all the backlogs and all this other stuff is going to really persist well into 2022. Mm -hmm. Interesting to see if these stocks actually still reflect that well into the year, uh, into 2022, now that we're seeing all this activity here. Yeah, I guess the, the big point here is that they're not pricing in any downturn yet. Like yeah. the, 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 the peak to trough earnings decline is going to be huge for everybody when this thing peaks and turns over, but they're not, the market isn't pricing it in at all right now. All right, last top story for you. This one comes from our director of Passport Research, J.P. Hampstead. He spoke to a couple Capstone Partners investment bankers, Burke Smith and Nathan Feldman, and they've never seen a better market for 3PL M&A. This kind of plays off of your thought there, Anthony, that they're expecting a market to be strong for at least another year. So when rates move up, and they have over the past year, obviously, brokers become more attractive to investors. And that's even if gross margins stay flat, right? Even if, if your cost of transportation goes up and your contract rates that you can, or your spot rates that you can charge, it's good. That's net, net dollar per load is, and more net dollar per load is always better. Uh, but buyers, especially private equity firms, they're also paying up higher premiums for those earnings. And lenders, they're waiving some of the covenants that require companies to keep their leverage ratios at certain levels. So there's a couple factories, factors at play here. There's a lot of dry powder in the market. There's a lot of cash ready to invest. There's a wider range of institutional money that's been flowing into private equity from universities, from insurance companies, and from pension funds. And then you had COVID. COVID completely slowed deal making. These are big deals that are often done in person where you're traveling across the country to make sure you get that deal done. And that just wasn't capable uh, in 2020. So you have a lot of pent up demand for those deals that should have gotten done in 2020 that now are getting signed in 2021. And then lastly, it's just how damn strong the freight market is, man. Yeah. This, uh, it, the market continues to push higher and continues to, to, to push on. And that makes brokerages more attractive. Last week, we saw Jordan Company acquire Echo, take them uh, private once again for a 54% premium on what their public market valuation was. And um, Smith, Smith said that the Echo deal is kind of just further confirmation that the private equity competition for logistics assets is white hot. And there was two kind of 
uh, takeaways from that is that one, there is a severe disconnect right now between private money and public money valuations, especially of brokerages. And Jordan Company's just willingness to place a premium value on Echo this late in the cycle, it's encouraging, right? It yeah. means that this is a really savvy PE firm that understands the market better than most, and they expect this to be good for at least a medium to long term. So I think it's a really encouraging sign um, for, for the market. And Smith says that he sees at least another year of strong transportation supply and demand dynamics for service providers, given the persistently low inventory levels and kind of the lack of growth we've seen of, of carriers right now just sets up for a good dynamic into 2022, well into 2022. Yeah, I think an environment like this also lays down the, the environment to really facilitate, I think, companies at 3PLs being able to come up, grow exponentially, and operate at a loss. I mean, we see this with digital brokerages across the board sometimes where they're operating at a loss. And it's interesting, I'm going to be interested to see how long this can kind of persist. How long will the market accept 3PLs or new brokerages coming up online, being able to operate at a loss and just see how much money continues to flow into it with some of these wild valuations. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I mean, let's think about Uber Freight. They are doing their best to get some cash on the balance sheet they, with that acquisition of TransPlace, trying not to, to run so much as a, uh, at a negative. They yeah. went ahead and booked some profit on the, on the book. And basically what that allows them to do is go raise more money, go be more attractive to investors. So yeah, you're right. I think we're having a little trouble with uh, Nate Skyver, our guest today. So we're going to hop into uh, our buy or sell for the day. I've got one while we get Nate all sorted out. So I saw Kroger CEO. I think you'll like this one. Uh, Anthony Kroger CEO Rodney McCullen said that the company's greatest challenge right now is not raw material inflation, of which there is a lot. It's not supply chain disruptions, of which there are plenty. And it's not trouble with transportation. But the biggest challenge right now is finding talented people to work. You buying or selling that? I'm buying it. Um, uh, but all the other aspects are issues because uh, inflation, definitely a thing. It's here. It's been here for a while. It's starting to ease a little bit. Um, that's, that's what we're expecting. That's what we're seeing now. But no one's really been reacting to it. Consumers haven't been reacting to it too much. Producers have been able to pass those prices on. So it's not too much of a thing. Supply chains, people have that in their mind. People are adjusting for it, trying to pull things up as fast as they can. But the thing you can't just solve overnight or really kind of understand to really put in place to uh, your customers is definitely going to be finding talented people to work. So I believe that one. I'm buying yeah, and it's like it, everybody's going after the same things. We talk about the problems with transportation. Everybody is having capacity issues. Everybody is having uh, you know disruptions in their production. Everybody is dealing with the same labor pool. Like Kroger is trying to add tens of thousands of jobs. Um, UPS is trying to add 100,000 seasonal workers. Amazon is going to add 125,000 workers, which we're going to get into here in a moment. They're all going after right now. We have more open jobs than we even have unemployed people. And it's, I, I think the, the biggest telling point here of what, uh, of what Kroger did is they walked back their cutting of ties with Instacart. So they repartnered with Instacart this week. And they said it's, it's literally, they're just doing it to leverage both our existing assets in a new way and offer something new to the customer. Back in January, I don't know if you remember this, Instacart laid off 1,800 workers like two weeks after. It was like 1,800 of their only full-time employees that weren't in office. So yeah. these were um, people that uh, would pretty much work at a Kroger or at a Mariana's and they would just go pick and pack orders, give them to other ship or other, um, other delivery drivers to take off. But uh, Kroger kind of walked that back back in January and said, hey, we want to take more control over our picking and packing. We're going to do the, the picking ourselves. And they mm -hmm. call it a partner pick model. And they went to this back in January. And then two weeks later, Instacart laid off 1,800 workers, all of which were ones in this model. So you thought maybe this is the end of this model. They're going to move towards a partner pick. Well, no, here we are just six months later. And this 
terrible labor problem is forcing Kroger to go back on their word and actually repartner yeah. with uh, Instacart again. So I just think that's a, that's a big move that people aren't really talking about a lot here. The fact that they were able that they have to they feel the need to go back and partner with them. Definitely, and that, that might be the case that you can kind of copy and paste on different industries of people having to outsource and go to third parties, go to freelancers, and go to other entities to kind of uh, fulfill and satisfy the work requirements. I want to mention one thing about Kroger because I wrote about them uh, yesterday in Point of Sale. Uh, so I wrote about how their margins got squeezed in Q2. So they just released earnings on Friday and their gross margins were down 60 basis points year over year and down 120 basis points from Q1. So definitely saw a lot of, of pressure there and they aimed it at three different things that were really affecting it. Uh, normal stuff, supply chain problems, yeah. raw material costs. But the third one was crazy to me and I had no, no idea this was going on. They had a third of their, uh, no, I'm sorry, a quarter of their gross margin compression in Q2 was what, from what they believe to be organized crime. There's some huge theft going on in the food supply chain in particular. And apparently it's not just in the food supply chain. Home Depot spoke about it on their Q2 call as well, that their shrink increased something like 8 or 10%, and they put a lot of that towards organized crime. So Rodney McCullen on the call did talk about how he feels that Congress has started to put some attention on this, and apparently they're looking into it. So it might be something we hear a lot more of in the coming weeks about organized crime being heavily involved in like big supply chain theft. We're talking like tens of millions of dollars of goods. And so they're, they're basically like trying to do some investigation. The, the uh, Kroger, Kroger General Counsel is teaming up with Home Depot General Counsel and a couple other big retailers, and they're just trying to get a better understanding of where the distribution channels are. Like, where is this stuff going? Where is it being sold? It's going to be a big story. Just yeah. keep, keep your eyes on that. I, I think it's going to be fun like to watch. Like a produce mafia going on? Yes, there? something like that. Wow. Quite exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So still having issues with Nate. Let's go ahead and go on to you care or not. We've got four, ones, uh, four big ones for you today. So the first one is BTIG. So they are a, an investment bank and a, uh, an equity research company. They downgraded Nike just uh, earlier this week or on Friday over supply chain concerns. This is the first time Nike's been downgraded in a long time. And they came out and said that it wasn't so much that they expect Nike to fall on their face from these supply chain concerns. It's just that Nike is a super hot brand right now. And Nike's already projected that they're going to grow uh, low double digits this year. And they were just pumping the brakes on that. They might not be able to make that because of supply chain concerns, specifically with what's going on in Vietnam. Anthony, you care or no? Um, if I was Nike, I would care. But I care. I'm saying not, not just because like I'm not a, a sneakerhead. Like my shoe game is whack. It is what it is. But... I understand the value of Nikes and it's one of the rare shoes that you can buy, not wear, set them up in your closet and watch them gain value or be able to sell them at a premium from what you actually purchase them for. And so, I, of course, I think Nike is going to be just fine. And uh, I think I don't agree with this call um, because there's uh, like they kind of said Nike's going to be just fine. And so. I don't think they're going anywhere. I don't think it's going to be a devalued brand, uh, so to speak. For sure, they're going to have supply chain issues, but their brand as a whole is definitely going to be strong. Their price is going to be valued, and people are going to pay whatever they put out. Yeah, I agree that Nike will be okay. I mean, that's kind of one of the things that the analyst came out and said is that typically Nike is, you know, Nike is the best run apparel company in the world, and typically their supply chain is sophisticated enough to handle these types of disruptions. But this time, these disruptions are so big that they said even the mighty Nike, you know, is going to, to struggle a little bit here. And I think what they're basing most of their, um, you know, assessment off of, they did channel checks in Vietnam. And Vietnam's only got about 14% or 15% vaccination rate. And COVID cases are still spiking there. Uh, they're having issues with public transportation. A lot of their workers are, um, you know, migrant laborers, laborers that have to take hour-long buses each way. And those have been shut down. So 
Um, I think Nike will be fine, but what is, and, and they think Nike will be fine, especially for this quarter. They're expecting this to really start hitting them in December, January, and February, and then persist into the middle of next year. Um, you know, th- th- some of their competition may be a little bit less, ins- a little bit more insulated from this. For example, Under Armour, they said they've only got about a third of their, um, of their supply chain in Vietnam, whereas Nike makes 50% of its shoes in Vietnam. 50% of all, uh, all um, container-borne imports came from Vietnam for Nike. So it's a huge manufacturing hub. And you know, I'm sure they're working closely with their factories to, to try to push through and, and make sure everyone's safe working. So on that one, when you look at Nike, whenever you look at a manufacturer or someone that has manufacturing within China, it's hard to say, hey, we're, we can just nearshore this because the infrastructure for China is so hard to come by. I mean, it's one of a kind. They yep. built the country around it. Vietnam, on the other hand, of course, is a manufacturing powerhouse, but nothing compared to China. Right. Do you think this is more, there's more potential here for nearshoring? for uh, Nike or other people that are offshoring in Southeast Asia compared to those, of course, that are uh, offshoring in China? I definitely think so. And I think that this, this disruption in particular will say a lot about the apparel market, the sports apparel market. Like if, you, if we're comparing direct competitors here, Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, the big, the big three, Under Armour is very, very, uh, I'm not going to say sophisticated, but they're, they're way more balanced. They've got factories in, um, in South America. They've got factories in Mexico, whereas Nike makes I want to say like 80, 90% of their stuff in Southeast Asia. So I, I do agree with you that it is some nearshoring, whether it is to Mexico or to South America. I'm not sure. I just think the, the idea of having way more small micro, um, uh, micro factories around the world makes you much more flexible, much more pliable. And I, I think that that's what we're going to see more of. Smaller factories producing smaller quantities, carrying it in much many, many more locations uh, so that it's closer to the end customer and you're just, you're just more resilient, really. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We've, uh, we've got Nate here now. Nate. You there? Thanks so much for joining us. I am. Thanks, Andrew. Sorry about the uh, technical delay there. Oh, no problem. We understand. Live TV, man. We, uh, we, we, we deal with it all the time. So let's jump right in, man. Let's talk about this UPS and Roadie acquisition. What do you make of the acquisition? You know, it's not an entire uh, surprise, I guess, with uh, you know, UPS. They're an investor, had been for, for years in Roadie. But, um, you know, I don't think it's, it's an earth-shattering development from the UPS side. It, in my opinion, it does, I think, validate to an extent same-day delivery as uh, a, a need from UPS's retail customer base. And so both that and then acknowledging that need, and this is, I think, their at least initial attempt to help you know, meet that need on the, uh, on the customer side. Yeah, that's kind of how I took it. I, I likened this deal to the AAA Cooper Knight Swift deal a few weeks ago. Not, it's just that mm-hmm. it's not a huge deal. It's not going to be massively incremental to uh, uh, to UPS like just like the AAA deal is. But it shows that it's a change in focus that they are looking towards expansion areas and same day delivery is is one of these places. Did they? Do you think they went far enough here? Do you think they're going to look for add on acquisitions to grow this network? I mean, it is a pretty sizable network, two hundred thousand drivers. That that adds a, a decent chunk to UPS's delivery. I think potentially. I mean, I, I think the the acquisition too. It's 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 an initial step in the same day delivery, and it's an exploration of of that concept. So if if that I think in the short term is successful in in exploring, in learning, in learning how the demand is from certain retail customers, perhaps even down to smaller retail customers, that's really part of the benefit right now. Um, I do think this is just my opinion, but as far as an efficiency model of same-day delivery, you know the, the gig model and, and one-to-one or maybe a few orders to one driver, 
I don't know that that's the most efficient model long term. And so I do think there would be need to be, you know, additional capabilities either built internally or or likely uh, acquired at some point. Yeah, what do you make of I with Britton Ladd, an e-commerce consultant, he spoke to uh, Brian Strait last week about this, and he said that he really likes the idea of UPS going out and either acquiring a company with micro fulfillment centers, some you know some of these uh, micro fulfillment as a service, as they're calling it now, everything's as a service, but uh, some of these micro fulfillments to be able to be operated or at least be you know pretty much automated or operated by UPS and then have the roadie delivery network kind of delivering from them. What do you think of that idea? I mean, it's definitely an interesting concept because it, it does take that a step further in kind of, I guess, uh, up, upstream into the supply chain of the trend of, of having more inventory, you know, closer to demand. So the fact that that's already in the market, that's developing and occurring, then that would be uh, probably more more than complementary to this type of, of solution. Now, I will admit, you know, Britain is probably you know, far more I know he is. Uh, well-versed on micro-fulfillment than I am. So I don't know about a specific you know, acquisition target or if that would uh, align well with, with UPS's strategy. But conceptually, you know, broadly speaking, I think being able to, to have a deeper you know, integration into the supply chain with micro-fulfillment you know, could provide some value. A quick plug, I'm actually going to be speaking with Britton Ladd on point of sale tomorrow. So everybody hop in at 2.30 Eastern. We're going to dive into the nitty gritty of this, of this deal, talk, talk further on it. Talk to me about uh, just UPS and FedEx here, the, the, the ultimate rivalry between these two. You think that UPS mm-hmm. is, has always been a little bit one step ahead and you're not surprised to see them take the step before FedEx. Um, yes, and that's you know, my opinion based on, you know, I've, prior to consulting, I was a customer of both uh, UPS and FedEx. And while they... Both are, are phenomenal parcel, uh, you know, companies. I think that UPS has, in my opinion, always been ahead of of FedEx with regards to the e-commerce delivery, uh, positioning those solutions well with their customers, and having that be a, a focal point. And and so this kind of is a natural progression in some way that uh, the UPS is is continuing that trend. And it'll be interesting to see if if FedEx really develops much of a, a same day solution. You know, they've never focused on that uh, before now, and I wouldn't expect that to be you know, an, an immediate response, but uh, it could end up being something that if they don't uh, make some move there, that they're really you know, ignoring an opportunity. Yeah, I uh, I've been talking about GoPuff on this on this site or on this uh, this show and a couple others for a while. I've I, I really think either FedEx needs to make a big move. Somebody needs to go after GoPuff before they become a, a fifty billion dollar company and they become too expensive for anybody to snag up. Uh, let's let's shift gears a little bit. Let's go to this peakiest of peak season that we're headed into here, especially mm-hmm. for Parcel Ship Matrix Satish Indel. He's he estimates four point seven million. Uh, package gap between supply and demand headed into this peak season. What are your expectations? Yeah, that's that's interesting, and it's it's a little bit uh, less than what Carol Tomei I think uh, stated in on UPS's last earnings call, which is around five million. So, four point seven five million. It's still a large shortfall. Interestingly, you know, I think FedEx and even recently in a couple of, of interviews that that they did uh, have been pursuing capacity expansion a bit more, say, perhaps in UPS. Uh, but I, I still think there, there will be a shortfall there. In aggregate, what's interesting is, I think, how the volume will will fall in in peak season. And so part of what 
you may have just been talking about a little bit with Nike of some of the inbound supply chain disruptions. I think that has the potential uh, across certain categories, apparel being one of them, to really make the package volume incredibly volatile. So even if, let's say that the, the capacity shortfall in aggregate isn't as much as 4.7 or, uh, or 5 million packages, if the volume is much more volatile, then that's going to, to cause really a lot, of, a lot of pinch points with capacity. And you'll have you know, delays in certain carriers networks, both of, of those two. Uh, what we saw last year then was a release valve, unfortunately, was the USPS. So I don't think that demand and that volume is going to be you know, very smooth. And, and when it's not, I think that's going to cause issues. So, Nate, when we're looking at all these volumes coming through, of course, we're seeing record highs, things like that. And uh, it's going to be here for some time to come. Even I think the the benchmark is going to be raised, especially as e-commerce continues to grow. But as volumes start to come back down um, somewhat and peaks start to come back down, do you see there being an overvaluation or too much money going into certain companies or certain technologies that won't be as valuable or really utilized in the coming years? Or do you think that a lot of these companies are just getting ahead of the curve right now? I think overall, the you know, some of the investment in whether it's it's new, say new providers altogether, I mean, that's one area that's been heavily invested in. I think it's appropriate right now. And it's interesting, I guess UPS and FedEx almost validate that because they at least outwardly project that there's going to continue to be, in their opinion, a deficit with you know, supply and demand from a capacity standpoint. And uh, I think even as maybe the the package volume as a percentage of, of e-commerce as a percentage of total, perhaps that moderates a bit, or at least the growth does, I still feel like the, the fact that there's there's been a shift uh, to, uh, to digital, which was going to continue to increase package volume, and I don't see this kind of maybe overbuilding necessarily. I do think a lot of it is is well uh, positioned. And uh, I think that retailers, it's in their best interest to explore some of those solutions and to get kind of get in early uh, and, and decrease their dependency on UPS and FedEx. Yeah, I mean, you want to look at the nation's leader in this. Amazon added 250 buildings of, of different uh, varieties over the past year, adding 100 more this month alone, definitely breaking their dependency, trying to take as much of their you know, control of their supply chain as possible. Nate, uh, thanks so much for your time today. I do want to give you one moment, so I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot, but one kind of you know, going away question I like to ask is, is there something going on in your corner of the supply chain that's just not getting talked about enough that you want to shed some light on? Is there anything... Uh, cha- a challenge or um, you know a company that's doing well, just some something that you're dealing with that you want to shed a little light on. Um, I think one thing is is actually the fact that while some retailers are being I'll say proactive, maybe open minded uh, in exploring alternative carriers, alternatives meaning let's say alternatives to UPS, FedEx, the Postal Service, and even the top few regionals. So beyond those carriers. Some are doing that, but not as many as, as maybe I expected and that I think should. And, and that's something that will be interesting, I think, to see really that through the end of this year, but more so into the beginning of next, is, is how intentional uh, some companies are in really diversifying their carrier base. Uh, because that's something that I think 
Uh, we've seen you know, all the, the disruption supply chain and then, of course, the rates increasing from all the carriers, namely UPS and FedEx the most, really being uh, planful about diversifying your carrier base, I think, is is key. And I've been a little bit surprised in some cases about you know, some companies not pursuing that as, as heavily. Nate, I think that's great. I, we've heard every executive on every company talking about how they want to make their more their supply chain more flexible, more agile, but very few actually give specific ways to do that. And one of those ways is to diversify your carrier base, diversify your warehouse base, diversify your production base, uh, give yourself a little bit more space everywhere. Nate, thanks so much for your time today. All right. Thank you. All right. That was Nate Skyver, the founder of, of, LPF, uh, of LPF Spend Management. That was great. Um, all right, so we've come up on time, unfortunately. I was going to talk about how Amazon was looking to hire 125,000 workers for this holiday season. They've pushed up their hourly wage to $18 an hour. You think that'll do it? Uh, maybe. And I think it's just, like you said uh, before, talk, talking about con- competing against this one big workforce, maybe that'll do it. But they have the pockets to do it, and they're going to take they can flex those pockets and really take those uh, employees or needed employees from other places. Yeah, they're also paying 100% college tuition now for full-time employees, Amazon is. Pretty remarkable. There's like uh, five or 10 major US, re- uh, major U.S. employers that are paying 100% uh, college education, which I think is great. Uh, we'll see if Amazon can hire those 127. They, uh, they hired three, no, they hired 680,000 last year. Uh, yeah. So I think they've got, they're pretty good at bringing these people on really quickly and making sure they get to work fast. All right, that's been it for episode 85, a bit of a milestone here uh, for us here at Great Quarter, guys. Thanks so much for your time today. We'll see you again next week. We'll be back 3 o'clock Eastern right here on FreightWaves TV.